Human beings are impressionable, that's for certain. Most people want to find a place where they belong, something that offers them a purpose in life, somewhere they can be around like-minded people, all working towards a similar goal. But it's not always that simple. It's a lot about exclusivity. You may feel a lot more part of the group if the person letting people in the door is selective about who comes in. It's the same reason you might see a long line outside of a nightclub. Though a nightclub may not be your scene personally, what's inside is desirable. Exclusivity controls a great portion of our lives from the university that we are applying to and hoping to get accepted in and the job we're hoping to land afterwards. All of these places have an empty slot waiting for the perfect person. Not anybody can fit there. You have to work to achieve it. You have to be exactly what they're looking for. There are people who understand this aspect of human nature well, and like a skilled predator, they can spot you, recruit you, break you, and remake you. And before you know it, you've become someone totally different, someone who they want you to be. Cults. If you want to make an impact in the world, a cult is a pretty decent place to do it, but perhaps not always with your best interests in mind. Truth be told, cult leaders can make people do some pretty crazy things, like in the case of the Manson family. Charles Manson wasn't a well-educated man, having spent most of his life in prison, but he was an intelligent man. He was a philosopher and an artist, someone who would be easily looked up to in 1960s America. Hippies, all too willing to listen and live their lives enveloped in art and communal living, made perfect targets for Manson, who, behind the guise of a philosophical genius, was little more than a manipulative wolf in sheep's clothing. Manson had managed to assemble a commune of about 20 people, mostly women, and it was a pretty decent life. It was an enlightened life, a spiritually and psychologically fulfilling life, or at least that's what Manson said. Manson was a role model, a man to be looked up to, and that's exactly what his followers did. They often performed duties as servants for him. Having his followers so tightly around his finger, he would begin to question their core values and beliefs. He'd erase the world they once knew and rebuild it in his own image. In a dilapidated ranch away from society, of course, Charles Manson was their caretaker and overseer. Any new life experience had to pass through him first. And through persuasive coercion, he was able to turn some of his faithful followers into bloodthirsty monsters. Charles Manson spoke to his family and insisted that an apocalyptic race war was imminent and that they were the ones who had to initiate it. And he figured the best way to do that was to commit bloody, horrible murders to attract media attention and then blame it on black people. The terror brought on by Manson and a select few of his indoctrinated followers ended the decade of love in 1969 where nine brutal murders were committed. Victims included actress Sharon Tate and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Charles Manson wasn't one of the killers though, no, he didn't even need to go. His followers weren't only doing as they were told, they were consumed by what they were told. Sharon Tate, eight months pregnant at the time, had been strung up and stabbed to death while she pleaded for the life of her unborn child. The word pig was written in her blood on her door. 
the word war was cut into another victim's abdomen. Manson had offered these people something that a lot of people look for in their life, a purpose, a way to stand out and make something your own. And unfortunately, that thing belonged to Manson the entire time. Charles Manson had brainwashed his followers, and brainwashing is most effective in an environment that the person trusts, or at least thinks they trust. Like a yoga class, for instance. Which brings us to our next cult, Om Shinrikyo. The classes began in 1984 out of Tokyo, Japan. Members would come to take part in a unique style of yoga and meditation, led by its teacher Shoko Asahara. By 1989, Shoko became more than just a yoga instructor. He began to infuse multiple religious ideologies into his teachings and made claim that he was Japan's fully enlightened Christ, who would not only save his followers from sin, but also from the inevitable Armageddon he had predicted. Though the cult had developed a bit of a tarnished reputation arising from claims that they would often keep members who tried to leave captive or perhaps even murder them, the Japanese government still granted them official status as a religious organization. As the 1990s began, Shoko started to fill his believers' heads with warnings, claiming that the United States was about to attack Japan and initiate the end times. So, Om Shinrikyo began to stockpile weapons and military hardware, and in 1993, they had started developing sarin. Sarin is a colorless, odorless liquid classified as a weapon of mass destruction. A powerful nerve agent, it prevents proper operation of an enzyme that acts as the off switch for glands and muscles. Without an off switch, your glands and muscles are constantly stimulated. Symptoms of exposure will begin within a few seconds, and the body will secrete all liquids uncontrollably, from sweating to vomiting to diarrhea. Sarin is incredibly lethal and can kill you in just minutes. In 1995, Shoko had received word from one of his followers that police were planning to raid his facilities. So in order to distract the police from their activities, he had some of his members release sarin gas into the Tokyo subway system. Thirteen people died as a result of sarin exposure, 54 were injured, and nearly 1,000 people were affected by the gas. Thankfully, this didn't stop the police who raided his properties regardless. As a result of the raid, police had discovered explosives, chemical and biological weapons such as anthrax and Ebola cultures, millions of dollars in cash and gold, LSD, methamphetamine, victims imprisoned in cells, a Russian military helicopter, and enough sarin to kill over four million people. Despite Shoko's claims that the evidence was manufactured by law enforcement, he was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging in 2004, and though he still lives, he's disassociated himself from the cult, which is still active today under a new name. Charles Manson and Shoko Asahara were able to take what could be considered a regular person and turn them into a murderer. But don't worry, not all cults are dangerous to outsiders. A lot of them keep the death and destruction in-house. The movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God was based in Uganda. Leaders believed that the apocalypse would come on January 1st of 2000 and believed so highly in keeping the Ten Commandments that they often wouldn't speak as not to accidentally break the commandment of bearing false witness. The group was a breakaway Catholic cult that would often take in defrocked priests and nuns and give them positions of authority. January 1st of 2000 came and went, and there wasn't a single apocalypse in sight. So as not to shake the faith of their followers, leaders reset the date to March 17th of 2000. Hundreds of followers gathered at their church on that day. 
Shortly thereafter, the building erupted into flames and set ablaze all those within it. After the flames had died down, over 700 bodies were found, with strong evidence indicating that the act was not suicide, but murder. A number of the bodies had been poisoned, some had been strangled, and the rest burned alive. But it's not always about murder. Some cults avoid that at all costs, such as Heaven's Gate. Marshall Applewhite founded the Heaven's Gate cult in the 1970s. Like most other cults, the belief of an incoming apocalypse was forced upon its members. They believed that the only way to survive would be to ascend to the next level of existence, and if they all killed themselves at precisely the right moment, they would be taken to an alien spacecraft hiding behind a comet that had been passing by. On March 26th of 1997, Marshall Applewhite and 38 of his followers were all found dead in a luxurious mansion they had been staying in. All had died from ingesting poison and lie dead in their bunk beds, dressed identically with plastic bags over their heads. It's nice to be accepted into a place where everybody's considered equal. Everyone has a job and everybody's respected for doing their job. But sometimes equality isn't all what it seems to be. Founded in 1955 by Reverend Jim Jones, the People's Temple was firmly based on socialist principles. Jones believed his followers to be the purest communist, dedicated to live for socialism, total economic, racial, and social equality. Jones was a bit of a rock star as far as cult leaders go, anyway. He had met with a number of high-level politicians, such as the Vice President and First Lady at the time. Though the cult had moved around quite a bit over the years, they eventually settled in South America in a place that they named Jonestown. But not all was well. Some members of the cult decided that that kind of lifestyle just wasn't for them and they wanted to leave. And at that point, Jim Jones believed he had failed. Congressman Leo Ryan, accompanied by members of the media and some concerned relatives of the People's Temple's members, had gone to visit Jonestown as part of a government investigation. Jones was reluctant, but eventually welcomed them. When Ryan had arrived, one of the members of the People's Temple had slipped an NBC correspondent a note. The note read, please help me get out of Jonestown, and included his wife's name. And as time went on, other people chose to defect from the People's Temple as well. So Ryan had gathered up the defectors and decided to take them home. Jones had sent one of his followers to pose as a defector, and as the plane was moving along down the runway, he withdrew a gun and began firing at all the occupants on board. Thankfully, he was disarmed, but other members of the People's Temple were on the ground in open fire themselves, and Leo Ryan was killed along with four other occupants. The next day, Jones called a meeting and had aides fill a large metal vat with flavor aid drink mix and a number of deadly chemicals. He told his followers what had happened and that they must commit revolutionary suicide or else their children would be captured, tortured, and converted to fascism. Many members willingly drank the concoction, but as they started to die, others began to erupt into panic. A number of members were taken and forced to consume the poison, while some others managed to get away. At the end of it all, over 900 lie dead on the ground, men, women, and children. Jim Jones died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. It would be the greatest loss of American life in a deliberate act until September 11th. So you see, exclusivity can be quite a powerful thing. We all want something that makes us special, but if to be special means to be better, I'm not quite sure that any of these people found what they were looking for.
So be wary of who you consider a role model and always guard your mind. You never know when another person might want to find more use in it than you do. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. For some, rest in peace is more of a guideline than a rule. The loss of a loved one can be a very difficult thing to bear. In modern culture, if a woman were to lose her husband, she might receive sympathy and comfort while she was grieving. But this was not always the case, especially in ancient India. Sati was a Hindu ritual where if a woman's husband were to die, she would take her place beside him on the funeral pyre and burn to death in order to cleanse the spirit and to be reunited with her husband in the afterlife. True everlasting love. It would seem that this practice had a bit of a Romeo and Juliet feel to it, but the participants weren't always so willing to die for their lost love. As if the death of their husband wasn't torment enough, widows were seen as a wart on society, dishonorable and impure. Even a widow's touch or presence was deemed unclean. There was nothing even close to a normal life for a widow in these days. They needed motivation to stay put and be burned alive, and that's where the onlookers would come in to assist. If a widow were to try to escape her sentence, there were plenty of people with sharp bamboo rods waiting to discourage her attempt. Some women would be tied down to the funeral pyre, some would even have their arms and legs shattered to prevent further struggle. British colonial masters outlawed the ritual in 1829, however, some cases are still known to persist even today. Many of us have heard about dressing to kill, but how important is that if you're already dead? The Toraja in Indonesia have an interesting outlook on death. Their funerals are very in-depth and depend on a number of different factors. The ceremony ranges from a circle of men chanting throughout the night to a death feast that could last up to several days long. The funerals are often held weeks, months, or even years after the person's death so that the family can afford the outrageous costs. Some attendees come bearing livestock as gifts for sacrifice, which there is a near disturbing amount of. Sometimes hundreds of animals are sacrificed at the climax of a death feast. But while that may surprise you, what comes next is a bit more chilling. To the Toraja, it is of considerable importance every so often for relatives to dig up their deceased family members to keep them looking their best. Those who practice this ritual don't believe that death takes a person away from you. Family is eternal, and by keeping their dead relatives well-groomed and well-dressed, they're honoring them. The bodies are given what could be considered a makeover and are walked around the village as if they were alive once more. At quick glance, one might actually believe they are alive. The bodies are often relatively well-preserved and still have all of their hair. Seeing them dressed and well-postured offers an eerie look into the past. One man even seems to be smiling for the camera. Mummification is a ritual that not many people have much of a say regarding. Either you're mummified by the conditions that you die in, or you're mummified as part of a ceremony after your death. But a very select few Buddhist monks were able to complete the process themselves. Once a monk had decided to take on the immense challenge of self-mummification, he would need to burn away all the fat he could by changing his diet to only nuts and seeds. 
Combined with strenuous physical activity, the monk would rapidly lose weight. This would go on for a thousand days, and after that, the real challenge would begin. For the next 1,000 days, the monk would eat only bark and tree roots, and would eventually begin to consume a poisonous tea in order to rid the body of most of its moisture. This tea would induce violent episodes of diarrhea and vomiting, and make the body toxic to repel flies and maggots. At the end of this tribulation, the monk would be a shadow of his former self, but also a lot closer to enlightenment, and there would be only one final step to go. The monk, given nothing but some air and a bell, would be locked away. Each day, they would ring the bell to tell those outside that they were still alive. One day, the bell wouldn't ring anymore, and the air would be cut off. The monk had succeeded. It was seen as such an enormous undertaking that only 26 monks who have performed successfully self-mummification have ever been discovered, though many more had attempted and failed. The ones who had completed their task are forever known as living Buddhas. Self-mummification was eventually outlawed in the late 19th century. Across all cultures, death is a monumental event that spares no one. Some find it difficult to accept, but everyone has their time, and the clock is ticking. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. For some people, till death do you part just doesn't apply. Linda Chase was a woman who had been through a number of unfortunate relationships. But when she met Charles Ziegler, things were different. Things were better. Linda and Charles did many things together, but one of their favorites was just sitting back and watching NASCAR. Linda loved it so much that even Charles' death couldn't keep them from their special time together. Cleaned and dressed, Linda propped Charles up in his favorite chair, where he remained for 18 months as he decomposed and decomposed and decomposed. I find this impressive, considering I can't even watch NASCAR for 10 minutes. Linda was eventually caught after one of Charles' family members contacted police after not hearing from him for a long period of time. It turned out Linda had been cashing in on Charles' benefit checks. However, money was not a motivator for keeping Charles' body just hanging around the house. She claimed she was simply lonely, and he was the only man that was ever nice to her. Charles was determined to have died from natural causes. Jean Stevens is a woman who is all about family, most especially her twin sister and husband. At 80 years old, Jean was heartbroken and devastated over the passing of her husband James, who she had been with for over 60 years. She was so heartbroken that she had James's body privately exhumed shortly after his burial. She brought him home, changed him into a dark suit and tie, and sat him down on the couch inside her garage. James was finally back home. Jean had escaped the tragedy of death for 10 years before her twin sister, June, had succumbed to cancer. Jean had her sister buried in her backyard, and when no one was in sight, promptly dug her back up. 
She set June's body down on a couch in a spare room right off of her bedroom, where she would often spray June with her favorite perfume and doll her up with makeup. Jean would often talk to the bodies and forget that they were dead at all. That was until authorities dropped by and discovered the bodies after a call from a relative of her late husband's. The bodies were taken from Jean and she was barred from seeing them. She had managed to cheat death. However, the authorities cheated her until authorities offered her a deal. If she were to build an above-ground vault for the bodies, she could have them back. So that's exactly what she's done. With enough room for eight bodies, she is insistent on keeping more than just her sister and husband there. Currently at 94 years old, Jean will one day soon join them. Some families prefer to keep to themselves and some families have a very good reason for doing so. Margaret Bernstorff lived with her brother and two sisters in a large green and white Victorian house. Here they had resided since their parents moved there in the 1920s. Seldom evolved in public affairs, neighbors began to take notice when Margaret's siblings disappeared one by one. They would ask Margaret where her brother had been or where her sisters had been, and she'd claim they'd either moved or that they were ill. Neighbors often reached out to Margaret to see if she ever needed any favors, such as a ride to the doctors, but Margaret would always decline. Though she was sternly independent, people found her to be a kind and generous woman who would smile a lot and often pick flowers to give to people around the neighborhood, though authorities would find something much, much different. Truth be told, Margaret's sisters, Anita and Elaine, and her brother Frank had never left that old house. When authorities were called, the bodies of all three siblings were discovered, draped with blankets in different areas of the house. It was discovered that Margaret's sister Anita had died just months before the discovery, while Frank had been there for five years, and Elaine? She had been dead in that house for over 30. Margaret herself passed away in 2011. Born in Germany, Carl Tanzler came to America and became a very skilled radiologist. He came in touch with many tuberculosis patients throughout his career, but one was just slightly different. When Maria Hoyos came to Carl for treatment, he immediately recognized her. You see, when Carl was a child, he had a vision. A dead ancestor appeared and revealed to him who the love of his life would be, and Maria fit the description. Despite Carl's best efforts, Maria died of tuberculosis in 1931, leaving Carl alone and heartbroken. He insisted to Maria's family that he pay for her funeral and also for the construction of an above-ground tomb for Maria's body, and her family happily accepted. Carl came to know the ins and outs of this tomb very well. I say that because he was in and out of it all the time. After work, Carl would use a key to enter the tomb and would often sleep beside Maria's decomposing body. That would last for months until Carl couldn't take it anymore. One night, he picked up Maria's body and brought it back home with him. Maria had decomposed substantially, so Carl began putting Maria back together by joining her bones with piano wire and stuffing her body with rags. A girl must keep her figure, after all. As her skin fell away, he'd replace it with silk soaked in wax. As her hair clumped off, he replaced it with a wig made of her own hair. As her eyes sunk and rotted, he replaced them with glass ones. It would take nine years before authorities discovered what would appear to be a human-sized doll, laying in Carl's bed with glistening skin and dead, glazed eyes. And though Carl was found competent to stand trial, 
the statute of limitations prevented a conviction. At the family's request, an autopsy was performed, which had confirmed everything Carl had done to the body, with some reports claiming that he even fixed the body so that he could have sex with it. Maria's body was patched up and laid to rest in an unmarked grave so that Carl couldn't go back and repeat what he had done before. Over a decade later, Carl was found in his new home, dead. Within it was a life-size effigy he had made of Maria shortly after their separation. Some reports claim he had died in its arms. Some people like to say that love lasts forever, but perhaps they meant obsession. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.